You're listening to Culture and Christianity, a podcast of In-Town Community Church. You will find in the description for this episode links to handouts and resources that are mentioned during this episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you all so much for being here. What I want to do as we get started and as a few people are are continuing to walk in, um, I have, of course, every week said would love for any questions you have, but I have also very much appreciated a number of you who've used a number of different venues to get those questions to me. The reality of a, a topic like this in a room like this is that it's not always easy to be able to articulate a question succinctly and well um, for everyone, kind of just by raising your hand. So it's been really, really helpful for me to get those and process through them. So I want to answer a couple of them that I've gotten over the weeks before we transition into our final of our four uh, weeks of content. Uh, The first question I got, um, and this is great because it sort of reviews what we've covered, was during week one, there was a, a question just about clarity on why I keep saying um, the idea of two genders being rooted in both sameness and difference, kind of why I, why I emphasize both of those things. And here's what I mean by that. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, if you remember, we see that Adam is created, and he's created alone, and he feels... A, a, a very weird, weird description. It's a beautifully weird description, but it's, it's, it's non-sinful loneliness, right? He, it's non-fallen loneliness. He exists in a perfect world with God, and yet somehow he is still incomplete. And so God creates Eve as a helpmate for him. And the language that is used there is unique because on one hand... Adam is made in the image of God himself. And yet also there's a sense because of how we read Genesis 1 that that by himself he was not imaging all of what God intended to bring about in this world. And so only with both Adam and Eve, male and female, was the image of God complete or sufficient as we see there in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, some people have said, well, wait a second. Does that uh, negate God creating other genders later? Well, by itself, no. And I understand um, people whom I would disagree with, and I believe our, our church would disagree with, but I understand that line of thinking, that argumentation. But... The thing that the rest of Scripture does with Genesis 1 and chapter 2 is to continue to refer back to it, not as an example, but as a standard. Every single time we see conversations about marriage, about divorce, about imaging God, about um, gender in Scripture, we're always taken back to this idea of male and female, specifically the, the, the both sexual and romantic and emotional compatibility of those two genders together. Now again, remember we've said this every week, 
We are not saying that somehow there is a, there is a, a ranking of best imaging of God and somehow married people with kids come up here on imaging God well and then married people without kids and then single people. And It's not what we're saying at all. Jesus was single, not married, never had children, literally is the image of God. And nonetheless, there are these unique ways in which God has built into us different ways of showing facets of his image. And one of those is this idea of sexuality. It is this idea of marriage and the covenant that's therein. It is this idea of of procreation, of, of continuing to create. And the reality is that God continues to bring back again and again, this is how my people are going to be operating. This is how my people are going to be shaped. These are the things they're going to be doing. And, and that is where we root this idea of two genders in. So I just wanted to, to talk through that again with you. A second question I received is the question of, of why now? Like, why is all of this just erupting? It feels like we're, we're being hit by a massive tidal wave um, and, and it's a great question. It relates very much to one of the things we talked about during week two, which is the idea of plausibility structures. The idea that for a long, 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 long time, this was just not even, even a, a possibility in society, really, to be thinking about or talking about. Um, it wasn't a question, you know, that it wasn't a word, for instance, that my, my junior high students or my high schoolers would even have known or a concept or anything. Now, it is in the soup we swim in. It is part of our culture. And I think uh, that is for a number of reasons. Uh, of course, we're a couple of generations now removed from the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Technology has skyrocketed and accessibility of technology also means accessibility to Many, many different communities, many, many different cultures. For instance, right now, if, if I you know, have a, a, a weird, awesome, deep desire to dress up like a cartoon character for cosplay and go hang out with other people who do the same thing and celebrate some esoterically small comic book that only sold five copies once in a newsstand somewhere, I can do that. Why? Because the internet brings people together and creates community. And there's, there's beautiful reasons for that and, and things about that. But also it means that communities can coalesce um, even around things that, that as Christians we might disagree with. Um, and we would uh, not necessarily want certain information to be disseminated or to be um, celebrated or whatnot. And so technology makes that so much easier. And I think that also is why kind of just the the wave of lots of different issues now coming at us that we sort of have to talk about in much more public ways because in some ways everything's public now, isn't it? So that's kind of one of those things. Third question I received as well um, was the question of, of how to deal with this as parents um, specifically how to deal with this as parents as how to talk to your children about trans issues. Um, so not necessarily how to relate to your own child if they um, are struggling with gender dysphoria or interested in um, any of these things, but, but just sort of more general awareness. And I would, the, the advice I would give there, um, 
as you know, as is helpful, some of the content we've talked about, you know, we, we can start with our kids. But I think something more broadly that's helped me a lot with respect to parenting, grandparents as well, you know, we, we can think about this, is, is thinking about family identity and what it means to be the people of God. Um, I think sometimes we, sometimes we can overemphasize morality in a way that moves us very quickly into Pharisaism. Um, and so we can say, well, our family is going to do what's right and good, and those other families are not doing what's right and good, and we're going to be the good people, and they're not. And while everything I just said there, you can kind of tweak the theology there some and make it you know, theologically accurate, it doesn't come across that way to a child very often, um, especially if they sit there and they go, well, actually, their family seems a whole lot nicer than mom and dad right now. Or, you know, there, there can be some, some struggles there. And so I, I think cultivating this wider identity that says we're going to be a family, we're going to be a people that show God well. Um, and so part of showing God well is this, 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 and as appropriate, that's where we can start talking about sexuality, we can talk about gender, we can talk about lots of different issues within that bubble. And while that does not at all negate morality and saying X or Y or Z is wrong or sinful or whatnot, I think it can give a different category for us nonetheless as parents to think through what we want our kids to, 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 to lead with which is not I'm right and my friends are wrong and I'm better than them, but rather my family. I walk as a people. I walk in this tradition. I walk in this way because I think that this is what it means to image God well. And I know there are people around me who are going to disagree with me, and that's okay. I want to show them Jesus. Um, and I just think that that can be a helpful way to do that. Um, if you're a parent, though, and would love some more resources, there are some um, things we can talk about more in depth. Anyway, those are a couple of questions that have come through. Um, keep them coming. Totally okay. Would love uh, to talk further about all those things. This week, as we wrap up, we're going to do a couple of different things. Um, I had said that we are moving through with these last three weeks uh, three different lenses that a Christian psychologist named Mark Yarhouse, who's wonderful on this topic, um, proposes, just especially as a reminder that people often talk past each other because the, the values they're putting on even this conversation itself are not the same. The emphases on the syllables that they are putting on are not the same. And so because of that, we can sometimes be arguing with people or find ourselves in an argument with people. And, and, and the whole reason we're arguing is just because we're, we're not even coming to the table with the same point. We're, we're not even coming to the table with, with what, what would be a good resolution to this argument. It's not just two perspectives here. It's multifaceted, coming from different places and whatnot. And so in week two, we talked about the idea that many in our culture wish to celebrate trans and trans issues and we talked about the, the you know, negatives that we would see with the people of God with a lot of that. But also we talked about the feelings and emotions that we bring to bear and how 
wrong sometimes our reaction to that celebration has been and how, how there needs to be something different there. Last week, we talked about divinity. We talked about this idea of what is sacred and good and holy. And we, we asked the question of um, whether trans is a sin or not. And we're actually going to return to that here in just a moment. And then today, we're going to finalize with probably what is titled or sounds like the most controversial one. I hope it's not. But Yarhouse does um, use the word disability to move into a conversation about trans issues as well. And and I'd like to, we're going to define that here in just a minute because I don't want it to be taken um, wrongly, but uh, I do think it's actually a very helpful perspective. What I want to start, though, uh, today, like I said, I wanted to return to that idea of trans and sinfulness. I want to ask this question, why do people sin? Why do people sin? Now, on one hand, right, it can seem just like a, very, very easy, straightforward thing, but I'd like to put a sin in there, or a, not a sin, a, an idea before you, and I'd like you to, around your tables for about just three minutes or so, um, I want you to talk about it. I don't want to throw the, the hand grenade from last week of whether trans is a sin or not, but hang with me, because we're going to go completely off topic. Is depression a sin? Go. <laughs> All right, so here's why I picked why I picked depression as we're as we're coming back. Why I picked depression. I don't know in this room. I don't know in this room whether any of you uh, might wrestle with gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. And, um, of course, in a forum like this would not be the type of place that I'm trying to, to out anyone or, or anything like that. However, I know that a number of us in this room have or do struggle with depression. And um, full disclosure, I have I've been, um, I've struggled with depression before in my life. I've been treated for depression before in my life. And so um, this is not a hypothetical question in some respects, even though it is in others. I pick it because with respect to talking about the topic that we're talking about, trans and transgenderism, because the why of people sinning is actually a lot more complex than we think, isn't it? Now, realize what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the result of any of this is any different. It's still a separation between us and God. It's still deep brokenness. But why is Steve depressed? Is Steve depressed because Steve was born with some dopamine issues in his brain that created a chemical imbalance that make it difficult to enjoy things and feel deeper lows than other people and thus needing medication to possibly help with that. Could be. Is Steve depressed because life experiences have been painful or hard and memory is real and things kind of come back and remembering things and bearing burdens and whatnot? 
Could Steve be depressed because he's going through an emo phase and it's cool to be depressed? And, and that was like, you know, 11th grade Steve. Um, <laughs> is Steve depressed because Steve wants things that God doesn't want for him? Is Steve depressed because he's not trusting God? Is Steve depressed because he's a fallen person with a sinful nature? Is depression a sin? What part of Steve's depression is a sin? You see how hard it is with all of those different pieces possibly coming onto the table. Again, it doesn't mean to muddy the waters about what sin is or um, what the result of sin is. Again, separation between us and God. But I think a perspective that's multifaceted like this allows us to understand an issue as I've used depression, but also like trans, transgenderism in a similar light. Why is someone dealing with gender incongruence or gender dysphoria? Could it be a biological reason is involved? Possibly. We've talked about whether or not science could do that, but we did spend some time in week two on whether or not, or week three, on whether or not that is we have theological room for that, if that's the case. Biologically, and these are, these are some of these things that are not necessarily popular to talk about, and we want to make sure we're not overemphasizing this. But for instance, the rates of uh, mental illness and transgenderism, much higher than normal. The rates of autism and other spectrum-related issues and transgenderism, much higher than normal. There's some realities to broken creation and gender incongruence. How about life experiences? Again, it's not helpful to say, okay, you've got the causation right there. We have the reason. This is why people are X. Not helpful at all. But also, the rates of those who um, struggle with trans issues where abuse has been a factor, emotional or physical, is present. The question of you know, depression or, or poverty, social issues, very much present uh, for a number of people struggling with gender incongruence. Social pressure is a real thing. Um, the idea of social contagion is something that has been talked about in the media and, and, and for a good reason, that Sometimes you'll have a group of people and one person is struggling with in gender incongruence and because that one person is, it opens the question up to the rest of people and they begin exploring that same thing. You've seen this um, especially in teenage populations um, to a high degree. And then as we talked about in weeks two and three, sinful desires or reactions, that there is a reality that we want what we want and that society has made a more explicit shift to what has always been kind of our internal wrestling, which is that we're much more okay now as a society acknowledging that ourselves being on the throne of our hearts is what we want and is the best thing for us. And so now there seems to be often this value that says, you know, I have an internal person and if I can only figure out who that internal person is and what they want and how they can shine and I let my best self shine, then that can be 
good and healthy for society as a whole. And so we talked about how definitely there is some, um, some sinful desire to be a, a self-definer um, in, in this as well. Why do people sin? A lot of different reasons. A lot of different things. And the complexity of that needs to be a key player in how we desire redemption and reconciliation for people. It can't simply be, I must convince this person that they are wrong or crazy. Again, these are very broken perspectives in certain ways. Or sick or anything. It cannot be that. It must be something that is more nuanced, more compassionate, more loving, more educated of a conversation. Very similar to that question, what are we then asking people to do? So, so if we say, why do people sin? And then we throw a certain sin in there and we say, is this fill in the blank a sin? Then my next question is this. What are we asking people to do? Of course, the theological answer to this, or one theological answer to this, is repent. Repent and believe the gospel. And that is real. Again, I said, regardless of the complexities of why we sin, sin is still distance from God. And we need reconciliation with God. That can only come through Jesus and then Jesus calls us, even within that transformation that he's doing in us, to continually repent of our sin to God. So yes, we are asking people to repent. But I'm interested in what that means or what that looks like. If we have a complex view of the reasons for sin, and a complex view of redemption is also going to be present And that's kind of what I want to end with, with this idea of thinking about disability. The reality is, is that gender incongruence is very, very painful for many, many people. Even if it partially stems out of personal choice and desire that is sinful, it is still extremely painful. Much more so if that pain comes from perhaps a place of biological issue or perhaps a place of painful life experience or societal pressure. The reality is, is we enter into healing with individuals and with our our society as a whole when we offer a different and better way. That different and better way has to take into account all of these things. So one of the things I'd like to offer as as this idea, how do we respond to this, is with what is in some respects, and again, I say some respects because I don't want some one-to-one causation link to be made and say Steve is calling all people who are trans this. But in scripture, there is a category, um, in the ancient world, there's a category called the eunuch. Ironically, eunuchs are something that we teach kids about all the time. We just never actually define what they are. 
kind of like circumcision, right? Like I teach circumcision, I teach about circumcision and the sign of the covenant all the time when we talk about membership and baptism and whatnot. Never really define for that, you know, seven-year-old what circumcision actually is. Leave that up to the parents. Um, Eunuch's the same way, right? We hit Acts chapter 9. We get really, really excited about Philip and him being an evangelist and the gospel going to the nations. This eunuch comes up from Ethiopia and we are super excited that he's reading the scroll of Isaiah and there's a radically awesome evangelistic moment. A baptism happens. I mean, it's one of the cool, like, Stephen's just been stoned, but man, look at how awesome the gospel is going moments in the book of Acts. But what's a eunuch? Well, go PG-13 for a moment. Eunuchs, almost completely male, the, the concept male in scripture, were individuals in the ancient world who either had been born with a male reproductive issue or more often had actually been created. Individuals specifically born, often slaves, who would have their genitals removed. Specifically because who are going to be the men who are going to serve the queen? She can't sleep with any of them. Who are going to be the individuals who are going to be able to focus on learning, on study, on many, many other issues? Can we essentially force singleness in an individual? What's one way to do that? This happened in the ancient cultures. We will see eunuchs popping up, especially in books where queens take a major role. So you see eunuchs popping up a lot in First and Second Kings. You see them popping up all the time in the book of Esther, as Esther becomes the queen in the Persian court. And so in some respects, eunuchs had this uniquely uber-important and completely wretched existence where they were uh, given a very, very high place in society. They were a part of the court and got to, you know, move with royalty and were given so much more than normal. But they had had something horrible taken away from them as well. This is Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who chooses the things that please me and holds fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And when you think about the imagery, they're cut off. It's intentional. What are we asking people who are trans to do as Christians? We can say repent along with scripture as much as an individual who is acting upon their feelings of gender incongruence chooses things that are contrary to the gospel. We can call for repentance there. But the bigger question I believe the church needs to wrestle with is what then? 
what does it do, what does it look like to love people who are struggling with their own gender as a part of the kingdom and i believe what we're asking people to do i believe what we're asking ourselves to do actually as well and something that often the american church has lost we are asking people and ourselves to suffer and hope well. If someone who is trans is a follower of Jesus and they recognize that if they have sinned against the Lord in ways of expressing themselves as a wrong gender or third gender or um, something therein, if they have done anything at all to place themselves on their own heart instead of God and they repent of that, does that make their gender dysphoria go away? No, not necessarily. I mean, God can do anything, but it is not something that we see automatically happen. In Scripture, with any and all sins, we don't necessarily see desires, effects, consequences of brokenness just evaporate along with a transformation in Jesus. The reality for these eunuchs, and I will be crass here, but I'm being crass on purpose. Coming to Jesus would not give them reproductive organs again. There's not a miracle that is happening that we see recorded in Scripture according to that. Now, I will want to say this. Let's just say, let's just say you, you are injured in, in any way that has a loss, but, I mean, that's a very, very painful one. What if I come up to you and I just say, hey, you know what? I mean, I know, you know, you're, you have your issue But Jesus is better than that. I can give you hope in Jesus. Why are you so sad? You have Jesus. Ding! This idea of what is real Christian hope in the midst of a broken world is I believe something that the American church does not always offer well. When Isaiah here says, when he refers, it's fascinating that he refers to the foreigner. Let the foreigners join himself to the Lord. Say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. What he's saying there is, if you were a foreigner who had become a a God-fearing Israelite, not an Israelite by birth, but you had come into the faith, basically you had said goodbye to your family and your people. You had lost everything. And yes, the prophet Isaiah is literally saying what God promises is I will give you something new that is in fact better than what you have lost. But he does not sit in the cheapness of that discussion. Why? Because just a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 53, this is how the servant of God who made such a transformation possible is described. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. There are times I think, and I, I say this struggle as a pastor, I say it also as a young man and father and husband, um, that there's a tension within Christianity. And it, it is an appropriate tension. On one hand, we see in Scripture that these are the very words of God, and this is the way God desires for us to live. And to an extent, if we live according to this place of of wisdom and wholeness and holiness where we have people around us who are caring for us and we're caring for them and we're bearing their burdens and they're bearing for ours and the church is doing what the church is actually supposed to do, we actually start looking like a pretty thriving people. Sometimes lately the the Reformed Church has has thrown out the word flourishing as kind of an example, a, a, a descriptor of that. And that's good. Right? That, like that is real and good. The people of God should reap the benefits of being people of God surrounded by other people of God who are being transformed by Jesus. And at the same time, the reality is we are a people of God who are existing in a broken world that will not be redeemed fully until Jesus comes back. And so there are aspects of we are always cats in a bathtub. We are always people who are around a place that this is not how things are supposed to be. And so in some ways, we're, we're, a, we're a suffering people. It's very, very hard just honestly to hold those two tensions and not be... You know, prosperity gospel, victory in Jesus people here on one side, or morose, the world is horrible, Jesus is really not even alive. We just kind of sing about sad, holy things. Right? Like, this is this brokenness. I paint this, this pendulum, though, because I think for many people, especially in the realm of sexuality, they see the American church very much on the victory and prosperity side of things. The communication comes if you are good and holy and right, you're going to find a spouse, it's going to be great, the marriage is going to be awesome, your sex life is going to be awesome, life is going to be great. And it's only when sin comes into the picture that suddenly we see, oh, this is why it's not great, or this is why things are not true. The reality, you all know that's not the case. Come on. Any married or unmarried person in this room, which is all of you, could stand up and say, this is not the way things are supposed to be. But we don't communicate that often. I think sometimes, especially for the trans and LGBTQ community, leading from a place of humble suffering, being able to lean into the sadness of seeing the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And if you come to a relationship with Jesus, that does not mean your dysphoria is going to go away. And if the Biblical response to that dysphoria is not you can fix that dysphoria by transitioning your gender. Then we have to be able to give another option. 
If that other option, friends, is you have to suffer with that until Jesus comes back, then we have to be ready and prepared and equipped to suffer well with them. This is from uh, theologian Richard Gaffin. Christian suffering, then, is a comprehensive reality that includes everything in our lives in this present order, born for Christ and done in his service. Suffering with Christ includes not only monumental and traumatic crises, martyrdom and overt persecution, but it is to be a daily reality. Jesus, of course, says, take up his cross daily in Luke 9. It involves the mundane frustrations and unspectacular difficulties of our everyday lives when those are endured for the sake of Christ. The reality is for many trans people who are trying to follow Jesus well, the act of buying a pair of pants at the store may very well be a place of deep suffering. The reality of attending a wedding The reality of a teenage student saying, do I go to prom or not? And what do I do there? Is going to be a place of suffering. And if our Christian response is not fix this dysphoria through transition, hormonal, cultural, medical, whatever, it must be we will stand with you until Jesus comes back. And we have to think about what that means for its reality. So I come back to something we talked about in week two. The reality of sacrifice, of inconvenience. How will we deal with men's and women's ministries as a church if and when, and prayerfully when, trans people come to our church. For the trans people who are already in our church that you don't even know, thinking about how your comments and how your thoughts, how the way in which you talk about Jesus, the way in which you talk about sexuality, these things matter. And here's the thing, they don't matter in a a, PC sort of politically correct walk on eggshells don't offend anybody sense. It's not what I'm saying. Rather, they matter in a can we create an environment where deep and hard issues are talked about well. So I think one of the ways that we can do this is we need to be a people who suffer well in other ways. We need to be a people who talk about our suffering and our sin and our brokenness in other ways well. If we're a culture, if we're a climate that already normalizes our brokenness, if we already normalize the fact that we are not okay, we talk about places, even things like our sexual brokenness. I mean, how many times do we... You know, again, married people come out and say, my, my sex life is not okay, and I need to talk about it with somebody. And that sort of becomes a, oh, maybe we have a group somewhere for that person somewhere, you know, and they get shuffled off into a dark corner of the church never to be seen again because we don't know how to deal with that. All of us have those places of suffering and brokenness. 
all of us have pain. All of us have the effects of the broken world in our lives. And I believe in our small groups and in our Bible studies and in our Sunday schools. I mean, one of the the youth ministry training groups that I love best and, and have been involved with for a long time is called Rooted. Rebecca Heck, years ago, was influential in its founding and, and has helped uh, me when she was here to, to become a part of this. They actually say this, the, the number one issue um, with students today is a lack of being able to suffer well. And they say that because when a student encounters suffering and they have lived in a largely white, socioeconomically affluent area and, and lifestyle where suffering doesn't happen much and when it does, we have a credit card and we swipe that and we make the suffering go away. Or we have a smartphone and I can get a dopamine rush and make the suffering go away. Or I have an Xbox and I can make the suffering go away or whatever. It, we, when we encounter real suffering, God feels absent. It feels like the church has no category for that. I think as adults, we are that way as well. We have to be a church that suffers well, talks about our suffering well, and invites other people to to normalize that we're not okay. Jesus is making us better. Jesus is making us whole, but also we're not okay. And we can walk through that tension well. All right. I promise that is, yeah, it is a soapbox of mine. I was about to say it's not a soapbox. It is. All right. Here's what I want you guys to do. 1023, there was no way in four weeks we were going to be able to cover everything, and I know that. Deeply want this dialogue to continue. I called this trans and the gospel a conversation, largely because I wanted it to be a conversation between the perspectives of trans people, the trans movement, perspectives on transgenderism, and the gospel, and I hope you've kind of felt that back and forth. But I also understand in that title, the idea of a conversation, are we going to talk to each other about this? Yes. But I want to acknowledge that 10 or even 20 or even an hour on a Sunday morning is not enough time to talk about this. You need to have each other over in your homes. You need to hammer these things out over food and with tears and prayer and love. We need to do that as a church. So I think what would actually be more helpful for us is not just to release you into debate over what you think about this, but I do want to have some reflective time. And so how I want to end is this. On the back of your handout, there are two squares. One says something you've learned, and the second is a question you have. I'd love for you to take just a couple of minutes to fill those out and then anyone who's comfortable at your table and feels comfortable sharing one or both of your boxes I'd invite you to do that this is not a time for the moment someone shares the question they have the rest of the table chimes in and says well let us answer that question for you no I just want us each to be able to articulate something we learned and a question we still have So take a couple of minutes of silence and fill those boxes out, or at least in your head if you don't have a pencil or pen. And then when you feel like your table's ready, 
share one or both of those, and I will pray us out when we all need to leave. Please email me, come talk to me. Um, We don't want it to end here. So let me pray for us and get everybody out of here. Jesus, again, we thank you for the honor and privilege of um, walking in your footsteps and um, being made more and more like you, both in your victorious victory over sin, but also in in the real suffering um, of this world. Um, We thank you for that. We don't want to take that for granted. May both of those realities, death and resurrection, um, impact how we worship you today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture and Christianity. InTown Community Church is located in Atlanta, Georgia. You can find out more information about our church on our website, intown.org. If you would like more information, please contact us at askintown at intown.org.